Today's episode of the Bingers Assemble is brought to you by our friends over at the Naughty Law Group. Now check this out. I say this all the time. You already got your tax returns back. Things are pretty wild. But things might go awry. You know, you're getting back into the work. You're getting back in the flow of things. And maybe you got a landlord that's acting out of sort. Maybe you got a co-worker or you got a neighbor that you don't want to deal with. But when that happens and you want to go to litigation, you want to go with a lawsuit, you want to go to the man with the plan, the people's attorney, who can get you exactly the verdict that you're looking for. That is our friend John Naughty over at the Naughty Law Group. Look, you already know him. He is the people's attorney. He has a history of if you want to go to court, if you want to settle, he'll tell you what is best for you. Look, and all these other, look, you go you go and you talk to the courts, they have a list of people that they're going to push over and that they know that they can salivate or the fact that they're going to see him. When they see Naughty's name, they run, they quiver, and they know that. His clients are going to get what they're looking for. Check them out. That's John Naughty over at www.naughtylawgroup.com. Yeah, everyone. So coming up, we're going to be joined again by the Cinema Assassin, making his uh, very vaunted return, I think third appearance ever on the Avengers Assemble. So if you wondered who that other guy is in the logo, it's him. He's been off doing a bunch of things, but he's came back because we gave him a steel chair, we gave him a sledgehammer, we gave him a very scantily clad valet um, because we're going to be doing the Attitude Era of WWF. It's coming up next. Welcome back to the Bingers Assemble. Uh, it is your main man, the great one, the Brahma Gemini, the rattlesnake, Chris Wiggins. Um, look, the Mexican Sidewinder is out, and our good friend Suburban Scotty Bauer had a, uh, he, he's having a some type of an issue with like heel um, fungus or something like that, or he just can't be here. But we got the main man who gave the Mexican Sidewinder nickname, and that's our boy, Chris Hill, the cinema assassin, is back in the building. Chris Hill, it has been a long damn time. What the hell is happening? Where have you been? What is going on? It has been far too long. I, uh, it, it, It's just too hard for me to to go into a three-way match with the Mexican sidewinder <laughs> and the suburban Scotty Bauer. So, uh, you know, much like uh, much like uh, an injury, I, uh, I had to take, uh, take some time off. All right. Well, look. Let's be honest. You've been flirting with some of the rival promotions. All right. That's what's been going down. <laughs> like gimmick changes and all types of crap like that. But look, we got you here on a very special episode of the weekly uh, on the Benchers Assemble, not the Weekly Chef. Uh, we don't cover wrestling on the uh, the Weekly Chef because we're not cool enough. But the Benchers Assemble brings the heat. Uh, we got a special episode happening here. This has been about three years in the making. It was on the original list of things that we wanted to cover. Um, it's going to be grandiose in scale. We had to find a way to get this because we are basically going to do the unheard of. Um, all these other shows, they like to cover a bunch of crap and all. Um, here at the Bingers, we cover the best stuff. And today, we're going to be covering Raw and SmackDown from the WWF Attitude Era. Now, some rules on this episode. Quite frankly, this we are not really touching on pay-per-views. We are talk, talking about the stuff that you could see for free. You didn't have to pay $65. You didn't have to watch that scrambled TV like uh, Chris Hill would do and sit there and like, oh, I watched, I watched, I saw what happened on the pay-per-view, blah, 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 right? But he never saw, he just heard what happened, right? None of that, no black boxes. This is simply USA, TNN, um, this is UPN. We're talking Raw, we're talking SmackDown, we're talking live television, 
I don't even know the number of episodes that have occurred, but this is Attitude Era between mid-1997 until just about April 2021, so 21 years ago, the end of the Attitude Era. Uh, we're going to be talking about this, and look, this era defined by crash TV-like product. Back when you were watching that old Jerry Springer. Um, revolutionized by WWF head writer Vince Russo at the time. I got an interesting story, Chris, I'm going to tell him, tell uh, you because I'm pretty sure you know about this, um, about Vince Russo. I'll tell Let's you hear it. About him. So he actually was uh, never under contract by the WWF. Um, and he was their head writer and helped create this what essentially became a billion-dollar and super profitable era for them. Never was under contract by them. But then uh, WCW had came right way in around the year, late 1999, pulled him away, actually gave him a contract. And that was the first time he's ever actually had a defined, jo- defined job. He got to become writer because he was essentially working on, like, uh, the fledgling WWF website, apparently, and their, and their magazine. In like the most bitch capacity ever, and then somehow just kept uh, hanging around Vince McMahon, then started pitching him ideas like, "Hey, what if we, uh, we had this guy named The Rock? And what if this guy, you know, Mankind was around? And we gave him a mask and all this other stuff. And what if we did something with this guy who shakes his head named Devo Brown and stuff? And then basically that's how he became head writer. Like, have you ever heard of anything that damn absurd? No, no, I haven't. I've been looking for that opportunity my entire life. Yeah, me too. I'm constantly harassing people with my bad ideas, and nobody's nobody's <laughs> offering me a job for it. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I I, 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 I swear, I've met a lot of CEOs, and they see that I do good work and things, and they go, oh, your idea is great. That never leads to any of my stuff getting any up in production, so I don't know what the hell is going on. Like, I guess your name has to be Vince, or you have to have the same exact name as the person that runs the company. I... <laughs> I'm going to just start legally changing my name every other week until I find someone that, that wants to move forward with one of my ideas, because I think you're onto something there. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. Um, look, it can't be without, uh, without saying WWF Attitude Era. This product, again, Vince Russo, head writer, it was also heavily borrowed from uh, the East Coast Philadelphia Bingo Hall and New York Bingo Hall base Extreme Championship Wrestling or Eastern Championship Wrestling for some of our older uh, fat friends, fans. Just kidding. It's our older skinny fans, too. Um, but Extreme Championship Wrestling, this era defined more blood in matches, more sexuality than you would see in 1980s rock and, rock and roll wrestling era. Far more use of weapons like chairs, ladders, tables, sledgehammers, uh, flamethrowers, stuff like that. And more what the fuck moment. Uh, look, I want to I want to get your thoughts. Number one, you were an ECW guy, if I wasn't mistaken, uh, coming up. So, what was oh. your perception of WWF Attitude Era when going through it? Okay, well, first off, uh, ECW uh, was amazing. The production value was so poor, but the, it you thought somebody could could die at any moment in time because the it's I think I don't think the talent level was so great that they could uh, really sell things. Uh, so I think they just literally did it. Uh, I'm pretty sure New Jack at one point in time literally did stab someone in the ring. Uh, <laughs> what is this like? Uh, what, so what is this wrestle? What is this like? He said he saw what do you call it? What's that movie? Uh, what's the Tony Scott, the last Boy Scout? And he's like, yeah, I can do the, I can do better. What are they see what I can do on live TV or what? Listen, they they would go and uh, I watched Sabu one time wrap himself in barbed wire and then start leaping off of stuff onto people. Like, the things they did did not make any sense whatsoever at all. Uh, In terms of, like, skill, it just was 100% like, you just had to have the balls to do something, and 
they would let you do it because yeah. they wanted to hear the holy shit chant. <laughs> so and that was, <laughs> go ahead, continue. I was gonna say that's all it was. It was like, hey, if we go in and basically almost kill ourselves, like let's wrap a, a two by four in uh, in barbed wire and then just start beating the shit out of someone with it. They'll get laced open. We don't even like. I think they were too. Uh, their budget was so low that they couldn't even buy razor blades to blade themselves. They would. They would go. Well, why do that when we have an actual implement here that could just lace you open like barbed wire, and then they just crack you in the skull with it. And you know, Terry Funk has been laced open so many times. You you could uh, sneeze on the guy's forehead and it would break open. Let alone. A stick, yeah. maybe a two by four with barbed wire. Now, They're bleeders. You, yeah. Now, what did you think about you? You being an ECW fan, um, and then watching, seeing WWF start to adopt that. Uh, yeah. well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first off, uh, I what I thought to myself was, uh, I like the direction that the that the WWF was going. Uh, I felt a, I felt like. Maybe they're not going to kill someone like I, you're always expecting on ECW, but it like it took that approach, mm-hmm. added humor to it, and production value. Yeah. And at, at that point, I was I was all in. And I mean, even at at one point, there was this really bad ECW like they were supposed to invade oh, WWF. Yes. I remember that episode. That uh, Jerry Waller versus RVD and stuff like that. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. You're like one episode. It went absolutely nowhere. Uh, But (laughs) you know, it was slowly but surely people would would come over uh, to be in the Attitude Area, though they were always like really bad, watered down versions of of who they were in ECW. Like Taz uh, went from being the the human suplex machine, being able to just you know, slam people around everywhere to like, then his gimmick became like, I'm just going to, I'm going to walk out with a towel on my head and then I'm not even going to make it to the ring. I'm just going to sit down and start commentating and put on some orange glasses. And that's all it was. Like they, they didn't even, I think the people were so broken from ECW. There was nothing they could do by the time they came over to uh, WWF, except for, I think Van Damme. So I have something. Um, this is from a shoot interview that uh, for those of, for those of people that think this might be a little bit too inside wrestling, a shoot means something that is supposed to uh, seem like it is uh, real and actually occurring. You think, oh wow, that's brutal. That must be off script when it's not. It's just it's a billion dollar company. It's not yeah. off script, right? But basically, in talking to Vince McMahon, he goes, "Look at Taz. Look at Taz." This is Paul Heyman, the person who helped champion ECW after the great Todd Gordon that founded it. But he goes, look at Taz, look at Taz. This man was a killer. He was a machine. He was a wrestler, a great wrestler, a real man. But wrestling is a dirty word to you, isn't it, Vince? Your father built a wrestling company, and you had to have sports entertainment. We had to have sports entertainment. Ha, 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 ha. End quote. So then Paul Heyman looks at Taz, and he goes, quote, he was a wrestler. He was a good wrestler. He was a man. Now he's a fat little obnoxious color commentator and not even a good one. He's a sports entertainer. He's not a wrestler because you made wrestling a dirty word. You made wrestling a dirty word, Vince. What kind of man are you? What kind of a man takes wrestling and makes it sports entertainment? End quote. So, look. 
<laughs> Look, it can't be it can't be mistaken. Uh, I so when I first watched Attitude Era, um, I, I immediately fell in love. I thought when I was younger, like six or seven, outside of the time that Ric Flair and the Macho Man were in WWF and Razor Ramon, I thought WWF was garbage. I thought Papa Shingle was a joke. The Undertaker would have shitty. I love the Undertaker. He would have the shittiest matches, and I go, "This guy's a walking zombie." And then there's some voodoo guy, and then there's a fat Samoan dude who pretends to be Japanese, and his valet throws rice or salt in people's eyes. Um, and they have people like a dentist, um, and then a clown. I was looking wait, at wait, old- are you? Wait, hold on for a second. Are you referring to Isaac Yankum, DDS? Yeah, Isaac, who, yeah, Irvin who later Reister became as well. And, yeah. <laughs> I just like that Isaac Yankum became Kane. Yeah. So I thought WWF, like around 95, I'm seven years old. Um, I like Beverly Hills 90210. I like Saved by the Bell. I like the Fresh Prince. Um, I like to watch, you know, I like to watch Beavis and Butthead. I like to even watch the fledgling Jon Stewart show reruns and the Magic Johnson talk show. I would have chose all of that over WWF. Um, So I was a WCW guy. Uh, They had Macho Man. They had Scott Hall coming over. I thought, all right, this is this is captivating. It's real. There's no stupid stuff, right? Because you're at a stage where things are spelt with an X instead of instead of an EX uh, or whatever extreme, <laughs> right? Uh, you change things for disease when it could be an S or whatever. You're subverting. Everything was about how do I become cool for when I hit the double digits, right? Then the attitude error comes along. I immediately go, okay, we actually have something. Number one, WCW, they had like two hot women, Elizabeth and then DDP's wife. And then WWF goes, all right, let's take even hotter, younger women and let's get them stripping naked. Um, then let's powerbomb old ladies through tables. And then they get you quite a few different people. I thought this is captivating. Immediately, the first, my friends would always talk about WWF, but I always thought that it was garbage. I'd see the toys. I'd see the video games. i go, eh, right? And it wasn't until around 90s, just a little bit after 97, so early 98, um, where I started to go, okay, this is actually a good program and product, you know? So what you're telling me is that you were a fan of Steve Austin when he was a member of the Hollywood Blondes. Yes, yes, the stunning but Steve not- Austin and flying <laughs> Brian Pillman. Yes. <laughs> the best was when they would go and, and pretend like they're looking through a movie camera and crank it, and you're just like, what are you guys doing? I And seeing Steve Austin with hair, it just looks so bad. Yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the hair of, uh, who is it? Oh, yeah, uh, uh, suburban Scott Bauer. Uh. <laughs> Look, so a little timeline on this, right? So rival company, WCW, um, had been around since 1991. I believe it was originally called Jim Crockett Promotions back from the, I'm not going to get into the history of how wrestling business works or anything like that, but originally called Jim Crockett Promotions. There were territories. WWF had nationalized, bought up territories. WCW had came from the South. Basically, no one more Southern as a billionaire than Ted Turner. He comes over, says, I bought a wrestling company, establishes WCW. They, look, uh, those those early years, it, I don't think they get talked a lot. You mentioned, like, the stunning Steve Austin and flying Brian Pillman and uh, Gold Dust before he's Gold Dust when it's just Dustin. Dustin Rhodes, and you had uh, early Cactus Jack, and you had Sting, but you had my main man, Ric Flair, there. Those are, those don't get talked about. Uh, Hulk Hogan, biggest star in wrestling in the history of it, just no matter what, whoever you tell. Um, he joins 1994, and then it's things are meh. It's kind of lukewarm. He's not a Southern guy, even though he's from Florida. He's considered the East, and they go, we don't like this. This guy's over the top, stupid. He can't really wrestle. Then 1996 happens. May 1996, July 1996 or so, that around that time, Kevin Nash uh, and Scott Hall, the late, great Scott Hall, rest in peace, Scott Hall comes over. 
former WWF stars, went by the names of uh, Diesel and Razor Ramon, uh, respectively. They joined, they dropped the use of these names and due to co WWF copyright uh, issues and rules, and in friction, they presented themselves as having invaded WCW, showed up through the crowd on multiple Monday Nitros, um, and that would lead to the creation of the NWO with Hulk Hogan becoming a villain at Bash of the Beach 1996. WCW would then go on to beat WWF every Monday in the ratings for the next 87 weeks. Thoughts on WCW's influence on WWF? Well, I mean, they really flipped it when they when they took Hogan and made him Hollywood Hogan with the with the shim polished beard and uh, you know going against uh, playing against you know tight going from babyface to heel, dropping the vitamins and the prayers, and uh, instead you know driving around the the red viper and uh, just, you know, wearing a, I think at one point he was wearing a wig, uh, like, you know, it, it definitely influenced, uh, WWF, uh, were they E at that time? They were what? Uh, Say that again. Were they, were they, when did they switch to WWE? Uh, after the Attitude Era, so 02, uh, 2002, yeah. Yeah, so it definitely pushed them to get a little bit edgier, uh, they realized that, the wrestling of the 80s people were not interested in seeing uh and it just took things to a whole new level in terms of what vince was willing to take risks on and uh actually created probably the best content they've ever had uh it's never been nearly as good uh as it was in the attitude era uh it just became safe but uh it pushed them so yeah look you know this realistic pro this really product forced WF get rid of the superhero and those supernatural uh, supernatural gimmicks uh, brought realism to the product right you started to see characters with less gimmicks and more unique personalities um, that you could actually see walking down the street particularly if you're walking down Hollywood but you got Stone Cold Steve Austin you got The Rock you've got uh, for some of these dumb uh, fans that we have that's Dwayne Johnson in case you don't know because y'all some of my fans aren't that bright but you got Mick Foley you got Undertaker. You've got the American-hating Bret Hart comes back from this Canadian hero, right? That's like, oh, it's uh, look at this. He doesn't, you know, this greasy hair, you know, kind of boring, blah, 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 leather jacket. He looks cool, but is it is nothing, nothing cool happening in the ring or personality-wise. He immediately comes to Canada's better than uh, America. You got Bret Hart. Then you get a cocky Shawn Michaels, who I didn't consider oh, when I was watching Jesus. WCW. I go... This name sounds stupid. What a boring fucking name. That's not a Hulk Hogan or Macho Man Randy Savage type name. Then you got D-Generation X. Immediately. 19, this is mid-1997. Uh, things immediately become uh, things immediately become better. Just in every in every capacity. So look, um, the this is like I, I want to get your I want to get your thoughts on it because I think that these are the core uh, these are the core characters that shape the that shape the attitude era. Like. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. First off, Shawn Michaels. Okay, let's just call him who he is, Michael Hickenbottom. Like that's who he should be known as. This guy is—he uh, does one hour-long match, and all of a sudden, everybody considers him to be a legend. Uh, the guy's a dick, uh, just straight up. I was at Key Arena in Seattle. Uh, my brother-in-law and myself went to go went to go watch uh, 
a little uh, Attitude Era live, and we broke in backstage. And first we met uh, Aldo Montoya, the Portuguese man of war, uh, who we quickly realized why he wears a mask. Uh, anybody who's met Justin Credible uh, will know that, that is, that's who Aldo Montoya is, and, and he definitely, uh, he, he's not the face of wrestling for a reason. Uh, but then we met Shawn Michaels. And we asked Sean for an autograph. And uh, he just looked at us and he walked on by. And uh, so my brother-in-law is like, hey, Sean, can I get an autograph? And he just continues to walk. And he's like, HBK, give me an autograph. And he just continues walking. Finally, he did what anybody would do at that point, And he screamed, HBK and the click can suck my dick. And... <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, at that point, Sean, rather than, you know, saying, hey, guys, uh, I, I was wrong and I should have given you an autograph. Uh, he called security on us. Luckily, we made it out of backstage and, and got up to the main area before they shut it down. But then they, they completely locked the backstage area. And uh, it's all because uh, the guy's an ass. He's just not a, not a good dude. So I all right. So um, I, I want to provide some context here. It's I, I imagine at this point of the podcast, everyone that's listening is aware of who these characters are, unless they're just a glutton like, oh, I want to learn something, and we'll use this podcast to watch it instead of just watching an episode. Um, you know, Shawn Michaels. I look. Call, some people call him the greatest professional wrestler or in-ring performer ever. Can't be mistaken. As soon as he was on his way out, and other people came up, business started to get better. <laughs> it cannot be mistaken. That the moment that he retired, 1998, Mike Tyson comes in, right? Stone Cold Steve Austin comes up. They've already had, I think at that point, The Rock had already been in the Royal Rumble as the finalist in the Royal Rumble at 98. It's clearly going to be these two guys while uh, Sean was there. Now, what is the Delta, right? 1990, Undertaker's there. 91, Undertaker's there. Hogan's there, right? Macho Man's there. They leave. They, they start pushing Shawn Michaels, and ironically, they're pushing Kevin Nash as well. The business was trash. The company was in the dumpster, right? Even until 1997, when they know what they have with the future stars, Austin breaks his neck. They're relying on Shawn Michaels to carry the product and DX or whatever, and it's garbage. It, 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 it's, abs it's absolute garbage, you know? Um, it, it, look, I, so I, I look at this, right? I would watch some of those Raws, and you were lucky if Shawn Michaels didn't face anyone good like a Psycho Sid or something like that. You pretty much had a lot of trash happening. Like it was just, it was just the dark days. I blame him for the the depths that they were at because Vince McMahon clearly loved this guy. Um, Attitude Era soared without him, in my opinion. Like just straight up wrestling and Attitude Era uh, soared without him. Nobody, I mean, just his ring music was weak. His outfit was weak. The guy's rocking a mullet. Uh, when people didn't rock mullets anymore, uh, overall, Shawn Michaels was just a bad product. Uh, and uh, when he broke his back and had to retire, like that was just such a great opportunity for uh, for wrestling to not have to have to have those those HBK storylines. Uh, he just he was the he was the weak link. I mean, it was it was obvious to, to everyone that it was Austin and The Rock, and then Mick Foley came in, 
and his uh, his feuds with the the Undertaker, like it was just next level compared to what Shawn Michaels was was able to deliver with his sweet chin music. Yeah. Uh, so here, like my thing is, my thing is this, right? Let's, uh, well, let's give it, let's talk, you know, I, I, uh, let's not bury the lead here. So the decision to go to this attitude era, right? Represented a huge boom in wrestling. I'm going to throw some figures out at you, right? Um, and huge boom here for the WWF. So according to market watch, um, in, in 1997, they made $91 million, right? On about 8.4 million in losses. Um, by 2001, which is seen as this is the, what do you call it? This is the end of the Attitude Era. The company grows $438 million on $16 million in losses. Um, look, we'll get to this later, right, in the podcast. Austin, biggest star, made the most money off merchandise in wrestling his, history. And it's alleged, that's alleged uh, that he made the most, right, by Vince McMahon. But you should know, these are his books, right? So the company made $379.3 million in the year 2000. These are according to SEC filings as they had just uh, went public and IPO'd in 1999. Um, so Stone Cold Steve Austin was missing for nine months out of that year, and they made $380 million. That is how powerful this era was. He didn't He didn't return until month nine. He didn't actually have a match until month 10. I think it was month 11 when he started having matches on Raw, right? So, look, like simply put, this era was just an absolute boom, right? It was firing on all cylinders no matter who you had it. Uh, Shawn Michaels was the antithema to that, like in every capacity. Um so let me get to let me get to a little bit of numbers, right? Because we came here, we wanted to talk about Raw. So Raw had been on the air since 1993. It was rebranded as Raw is War. Uh, would air for two hours every Monday on the USA Network, competing against the uh, rival Monday Nitro. Then it went to TNN, which uh, in the start fall of 2000, which would eventually become Spike TV. The second hour would be rebranded as the War Zone, and this was when you see more blood, more cussing. Um, it was late at night. Uh, this actually allowed WWF to charge for additional advertisers as being technically another show. So you see a different cop, you see a copyright, uh, and you think, oh man, the show's going off, right? It's 9:59 or so. Um, but that just meant that that was the end of the first hour. WWF SmackDown launched in August 27, 1999, on UPN, occurring every Thursday night. So the venerable commentators on these uh, shows: Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler for the former, ah! Jerry Lawler and <laughs> Jerry Lawler and Michael Cole for the latter. Um, Lawler in both cases, uh, obviously the color commentator, uh, and then Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler would be would be the uh, do it for the what do you call it for uh, what would do the pay per views and all. Got to get your opinion on the commentary teams. Okay, first off, any commentary team with uh, the King is a great commentary uh, team. Like the King would just he would not only would he bring his own opinion and always play up the heel but uh he was also just such a little weasel that he would completely change uh what he was saying depending on if a character would come out uh and join the announcing team plus <laughs> like you'd see the rock come out and all of a sudden everything that, that lawler had just said before completely switched and he had a proclivity for puppies, and who doesn't like puppies? Look, I gotta say that you, you look. It, it's well known by everybody that has ever talked wrestling with me. Jerry Lawler. I would not have watched WF if it wasn't for Jerry Lawler. Um, just immediately high pitch, 
high pitch, uh, high pitch streak. Ah! Oh my God! Look at this! Woo! And look, I, you know, pe- people know I have three people from this era that I'm really high on. I don't necessarily care too much about all of the others, right? My big three: The Rock, Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero. No mistake that uh, Jerry Lawler was the biggest fan of all of them. The Rock would come. Right, and he goes, Ta-ha! laugh at every single thing that he said, even if The Rock was a good guy. And Jerry Lawler root for bad guys. Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Kurt Angle always happened to be a villain. Um, it's uh, like you know, he just immediately sucks up to him. Oh, he's an Olympic hero. Well, look, look at this. All right, uh, ah, he's like the Michael Jordan of this. Right, watch the match. First, Kurt Angle's first match was on a pay per view. Jerry Lawler is out there uh, rooting against Kurt Angle because I, I don't know how they were trying to push him as a villain or a good guy, but he's rooting against him, telling him that his Olympic stuff doesn't work in the WWF. Kurt Angle goes, grabs the mic, tells the crowd to stop booing him, not to boo an Olympic hero, and immediately Jerry Lawler switches over to say, oh, this crowd is rude, and then starts rooting for Kurt Angle the rest of his career. Eddie Guerrero, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, just immediately, ah, Latino heat! <laughs> Eddie, all right? Simply put that, and then Jim Ross, I, look, all of your, all of the venerable moments and uh, the lauded moments, Jim Ross is behind him. Just good God Almighty, did that son of a bitch stop the damn match? Oh my God, they killed him! Damn it, damn it, damn you straight to hell, you son of a bitch! Does he have a conscience? <laughs> I, look. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta jump in real quick. Uh, when, uh, when I can't even, uh, I, I. When it comes to good old JR, uh, not only did he have his great uh, one-liners, tougher than a government government mule, <laughs> cheaper cheaper than a two-dollar steak. Yeah, yeah, tougher he, than a two-dollar spa- steak and getting beaten like a uh, like getting beaten like a government mule. Yeah. So, but he also had a cookbook, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, I bought it and. Uh, Delicious recipes. I got it. I gotta give a shout out to what good old Jr. Actually bought the fucking book. Oh, I absolutely did. And let me. T- I never knew you were a cooker either. Okay, first off, you can make a. They have what's called cane cake, where uh, you. Uh, it's a red velvet cake with. Uh, uh, you take sweet and condensed milk, I believe, and you pour it on top of it, and you let it all soak in. Or that could be. That could be the Mark Henry sexual chocolate cake because there were two great recipes. Listen, I'm not really sure. Good cake recipes. Jr. knows how he knows his cooking, and uh, if you ever do spot that cookbook, I highly recommend it. It and uh, it wasn't something I thought I was gonna, I was uh, going to enjoy because I think it was just I was such a fan uh, that it was purchased for me as a gift, and then I was like I was looking through it. And, I'm not gonna lie; those were good stuff. Jr. knows his food. So, what, what was the and what was the best thing on the menu, or the best thing on the best recipe there? Uh, it's either uh, both the the Mark Henry sexual chocolate cake and the cane cake are the two things that I would uh, I would always have. They were delicious. The only problem was the cane cake asked you to use food coloring, and uh, you knew when you were uh, when you. Uh, like a few days later, then you ate some cane cake, cause uh, yeah, you'd be shitting blue. Oh, terrible! That, that's oh wow, that's just awful. Like, yeah, I <laughs> wow, I don't know, I do not know what to say. But you know, look, look it, it's you know, it's like this with. I, I think that the, for me, the commentary made these shows. Um, 
it, it's like if you want to, if you go to what do you call it? You go SmackDown. I didn't mention this. Michael Cole, I did mention it br- briefly, right? He actually was a war correspondent with CNN, and then somehow got into the WWF, and he's been. Uh, the, uh, apparently, he might still be there. Um, and it, you know, I thought that even like him, like I think he, he and Taz actually began doing commentary for SmackDown around late 2001. Um, and you know, I thought that even that right wasn't didn't compare to Lawler or whatever, right? But I think that you got a little bit uh, different sense. But these sh- like these shows are made by the commentary. It's almost like if you're trying to watch a football game uh, without there being Al Michaels and Chris Collins. I mean, you can do it without Chris Collinsworth, right? But you know, most people can. Yeah, right. Try to do it without Al, Al Michaels. You got something awful. Um, or it's like if you were to watch like any of the shows you like from the '90s and then added commentary to it. Think about how much better it would be, especially when there's. Two people, they're they're biased. That's the very first thing, right? These aren't traditional teams, right? They're biased against one guy's rooting for the good guys, one guy's rooting for the bad guys. You know, to have you know to have a guy using chairs and sledgehammers, and then the commentator going, "Bro, oh, well, I thought it was justified, right?" Another guy, right? Oh, he can't do this. Where the hell's a damn referee, right? Um, that kind of stuff, right? It, it's t- it, it tells a story, and like if you're getting individuals that you don't know about, right? Jim Ross would give you like a, a bunch of things on, hey, this guy's background is blah blah blah. Uh, you know, he used to play college football before he became a wrestler, all these kind of things, you know, and, you know, you get, you understand a little bit more, right, why this person is athletic, right, or if they were previously in a gimmick, right, and he mentioned random things around, oh, you know, he lost a few pounds and all, right, uh, I thought that it made it great, but, look, let's get off the commentators, because we got some wrestlers to talk about. Especially since you're a Tony Schiavone guy. Uh... <laughs> oh, this is going to be the most impactful <laughs> broadcast in the history of podcasting. Um, Look, this era, it's, I, I think, look, I mentioned a few different people, like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Bret Hart, of course, left right when the Attitude Era was kicking off and went to WCW. Uh, Shawn Michaels injured his back, right? This era, it's Stone Cold, The Rock, Mick Foley, The Undertaker, potentially DX as a five. Um, can't tell the story of the Attitude Era without Stone Cold Steve Austin. I got to get your thoughts on this. Well, first off, the, the best thing about Stone Cold is that what put him over was, uh, what was it when he won King of the Ring or against? Yeah, King of the Ring. Yeah, against Jake the Snake, and you're like, okay, Jake Roberts and Damian haven't been relevant for a decade, and yet his promo was so amazing that nobody realized that it was over the weakest wrestler. Who I mean, at that point, I think he was, you know, he had uh, substance abuse issues and uh, less than stellar work ethic. He was going through some tough times. And uh, Stone Cold just cut like the one of the most epic promos ever. That uh, I have it for you. <laughs> let's hear it. All right. So this is again. Chris Hill was right. Stone Cold Steve Austin was previously in WCW. Comes over right as the ringmaster, working with Ted DiBiase. Um, is in the King of the Ring tournament where typically they figure out who they're going to push. So he goes and beats Jake the Snake Roberts, who's being religious um, and all. And here is his uh, here is his promo. Actually, right before we do the promo, we have got to go to uh, we've got to go to a uh, we've got to go to a break, and we got to read an ad from one of our sponsors. All right. So, hey, if all of you are like me, you're very warm right now. Look, I'm in this. I don't know what's going on with my air conditioner, but it's very hot. You know, sweating and everything like that. It is the big issue here, right? I gotta get my thirst quenched. What do you do when you gotta quench your thirst, Chris? Well, me, actually, I drink liquid death. Uh, <laughs> what a coincidence! I do, too! Now, check this out. 
we're from California. We live in California, right? He's right on the beach and everything like that. I'll get, tell you his address if you guys want it. No, I'm just kidding. But, look, we, we care about the environment. And so does Liquid Death. They're the company that said it is death to plastic. Now, here's the best part about it, right? Not only does it quench your thirst, it murders your thirst. Now, Chris, yo, check this out, bro. All right? Let me hear it. You don't drink like I do, all right? You know, you know, you're a classy drinker, right? So you might go to a party. You might say, you know what? I don't want to have all these little nasty beers and all this stuff, right? But you don't want to look like the little scrub, like right? teetotlers and all, right? You get a liquid death. You get a tall boy, a giant can. It looks like you're having a monster. Or it looks like you're having one of those OEs that them kids be picking up over at the 7-Eleven, all right? So you look cool while you're drinking it. You are murdering your thirst. You are helping out the environment. And check this out. If you just say, you know what? Spring water is bland. They actually got sparkling water, too. Now, what are you going to do with that, Chris Hill? Well, first off, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the of the sparkling water they have because the you know having a, a Lacroix or a, a bubbly or a buble or whatever they want to call it they're not exactly the most masculine uh, waters. Uh, it's uh, when you're drinking a Liquid Death, they've got awesome like their flavors. Even the titles of them are are, are great: Severed Lime, Bury It Alive. Or my personal favorite, Mango Chainsaw. Not exactly sure how a mango and a chainsaw go together, but they actually do, and they are delicious. And uh, I can hold it in my hand, and people think I'm tough for a few minutes. And that's a big deal. <laughs> they don't... It is, and it is a first. The, the power of death making Chris Hill tough. <laughs> that's what they should, that should be their tagline. Uh, drink liquid death. It even made Chris Hill look tough. Look, check them out. At a store near you, or order yourself a case. You can get them from Amazon, or you can go and check them out at www.liquiddeath.com. Now, we're back to things that are very liquid death, and that is our Attitude Era. Now, I think that we had left off talking about, uh, wait, who are we talking about? Right? Stone Cold Steve Austin in his epic promo. Yeah, I know we were talking about that. I wanted to catch you. Keep you on Doc. All right, anyways, Doc Hendricks, also known as the Freebird, Michael Hayes, goes up to him, and he goes, please, ladies and gentlemen, please... <clears throat> The fourth, the please welcome the fourth prestigious King of the Ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin, an incredible victory. And then, I quote Austin: "The first thing I want to be done is get this piece of crap out of my ring. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWF, because I proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, that you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there, you thump your Bible, and you say your prayers, and it didn't get you anywhere." Talk about your Psalms. Talk about your John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says, I just whipped your ass. Unquote. Doc Hendricks comes on. Uh, come on, that's unnecessary. Austin's back in, right? All he's got to do is go buy him a cheap bottle of Thunderbird and try to dig back some of that courage he had in his prime. Now, as the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWF superstars. I don't give a damn what they are. They're all on the list, and that's Stone Cold's list. And I'm fixing to start running through all of them. And as far as this championship match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin time has come. And when I get that shot, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Unquote. Uh, goosebumps. Goosebumps is what I, I, I got to say for, I mean, I didn't know how you were going to be able to play that promo, but, uh, man, that was, that was great. It, I mean, I, I didn't even realize that, uh, it was an impersonation or anything. I mean, <laughs> it seemed, it seemed like, uh, the Texas rattlesnake was, uh, 
was changing the game with one one promo right there. So not only that, so Austin 316, 1998, there's three things that stood out to me. DMX, Cartman, Austin 316 shirts. So WWF, they've, uh, WWE now, right? They've sold eight, I guess they've sold $10 million worth of uh, Austin 316 shirts in the life of their, uh, the company. Um, it's, it, or sorry, they've sold 10 million different shirts, right? So I'm not sure how much they made, what, $14.99? I'm not good at math, right? I, I went to Stone Cold's uh, University, actually, like seriously. Um, but they've sold 10, uh, well over 10 million of these shirts, right? Big boom for the company. You got to figure that that's what, $34 million in merchandising they made off of that one shirt alone. Um, this immediately, that's 1996, goes in, starts having legendary matches. By 1998, you got Mike Tyson that they paid, I think, $5 million to come do WrestleMania. Comes the biggest moment um, in the, probably the biggest moment in wrestling history, the biggest landmark moment. It says that this is here. Immediately, he's on to doing things like Walker, Texas Ranger, appearing on Nash Bridges, going on Jay Leno, uh, surfboards and stuff like that. Then in addition, you got The Rock coming just like right after this is really fascinating i want to get your opinion on this okay well first off you're skipping a, a small portion of the dwayne johnson legacy which was rocky maya okay. um right. but but much like uh dwayne we all want to forget that that happened uh but i think that i think that austin uh the way he changed it was an immediate influence on what the rock was doing initially wasn't working if he wasn't able to hear all the fans chant how much he sucked, uh, he quickly he quickly realized what was what was you know going over with the fans, and suddenly the Rock was born. And I mean, the two of them, like if you thought the the Twin Towers uh, of uh, or was it? Oh, I shouldn't say Twin Towers. Uh, Cut hey, that. You could save yourself, right? I really do hope you save yourself. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say the mega powers okay. is what I meant to say with, uh, with macho man and Hulk Hogan. Like those were the two biggest people back in, in the eighties and, uh, Austin and the rock just eclipsed them and blew them away. Yeah. Wow. I wait, we shouldn't say blow away along with the twin towers. That's bad. Good. Yeah. All right. Damn. Um, look, I'll say this, you know, <laughs> look, I think, look, these two main evented three WrestleManias together in 1999, 2001, uh, 2003. Um, I, you know, I think it's fascinating. Like, look, you talked about the Rocky Maivia. Like, for a little quick history lesson, the guy debuts in 1996 as a guy named late 1996 as Flex Cabana. He has his weird tribal stuff on. Sorry, not weird. Just a tribal stuff on. And, like, pine, hair is sort of pine cone but it's, like, very malleable. Or what have you, and flexible. Um, he's doing cross bodies. Um, within a few months, he wins the, he drops the name, becomes Rocky Maivia, wins the Intercontinental title, doesn't really do anything, wrestles a guy named the Sultan, who would eventually become Rikishi and a bunch of other crap um, at WrestleMania. No one talks about him. Disapp like People are booing him. They're saying, please die, please die, die, Rocky, die, stuff like that. Very legendary. Check out any of the Rock's interviews. He talks about it. Comes back a few months later in late 1997, joins a group called the Nation of Domination. I want to get into this really quickly, Crystal, and get your perspectives if you remember this. Joins the Nation of Domination, which is a Nation of Islam-style game that's saying that these black wrestlers are being held down by uh, the white uh, patriarchy. All of it's true, let's be honest. Uh, it's wrestling. There's, It's a white guy company, right? However, they're presented as the bad guys as they face off against a group called... 
um, that is a South, a bunch of South uh, African apartheid sympathizers, and then white supremacists with shaved heads who ride motorcycles, and uh, and then they're also in a gang war with a, a group of Puerto Rican wrestlers. This was sort of right before the Attitude Era took off. What the hell did you make of this? Uh, Disciples of Apocalypse, I believe, was one of the groups with chains and eight ball. And Those then guys. The Truth Commission with uh, Bull Buchanan uh, was that apartheid group. And then you had the Los Boricos with, uh, what do you call it, Savio Vega and I think Jose uh, Lorenzo or Ferraro or something like that. What did you make of this time? Okay, first first off, it, it was it was weak at best. Okay, first off, first off, well, uh, you, Vince Vince isn't one to shy away from from stereotypes, uh, and he is not. He, he, uh, a great storyline isn't something that is you know always what needs to to move things forward. Sometimes it's just you know it's what's the reaction going to be because Vince is just like, well, uh, we'll make someone terrible even if uh, they shouldn't be, uh, just because it's going to get a reaction. But uh, eight ball and chains that that came out on their on their bikes at one point didn't, uh, didn't the undertaker roll with them for a little bit i swear they were all riding motorcycles around and it was embarrassing i think uh, they were probably a part of uh, undertaker's backstage group alongside paul bear that guy the sultan slash rikishi we told you about the godfather who was papa shingo who we had mentioned yokozuna um so they were probably a part of that group um yeah look <laughs> so they go from that. The Rock uh, kicks out Farouk, uh, who's the leader, and then um, they go on to feud with Degeneration X. This is 1998, right, when this starts taking off, and he starts referring to himself in the third person and saying, if you smell what The Rock is cooking. Austin had just won the title that year. It starts to blow up. It's really blow up. It's really crazy to think that by the time Austin wins the title, he has like a four-month period before it's clear that The Rock is going to be on the same level as him. What do you make of this? Uh, nobody thought that The Rock was going to be as big as he was. Uh, that was... Quick turnaround from the Pinecoe haircut and the Die Rocky Die to becoming The Rock versus Austin. He did the King of the Ring speech I gave y'all, and then it's two years later before he wins the title, right? Which seems odd. What, that there was such a such a slow uh, build-up and grind for, for Austin, and then... Uh, well, the thing is, though, is that uh, you know it's what the fans, what the fans dictate. Austin was a was a mid carter at best until until that that promo happened, and then you know slow and steady he uh, he ascended the the ranks of greatness. Uh, once the Rock started talking about himself in third person, and uh, Jerry the King Lawler started giving him a great push. Uh, talking about it's the clothes that he was wearing, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, five hundred dollars shirts. <laughs> uh, yeah, the five hundred dollars shirts. Uh, I mean, you can't like there was just no denying what what the Rock had, and uh, also let's not forget his his image changed uh, very quickly. Like if you look at his Flex Cavana days, that's just straight up embarrassing. Uh, and then the the Rocky Maivia thing, like everybody just thought, like, well, it's only because of his lineage that he's even getting a push. Uh, but I mean, when someone comes out 
they cut an awesome promo and their finisher uh is probably like not the rock bottom the people's elbow uh he made the weakest move ever look amazing and entertaining and uh you just it was undeniable oh so you mean that oh my god yeah we're gonna see it here it comes hey what's the watch fine move it's more entertaining ah the people's elbow got him damn it oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and let's let's be honest uh uh farouk was not a fan of uh getting pushed out uh by the rock and uh the the charisma and the personality of the rock just showed you know exactly why that needed to happen uh i you know i like farouk when he was with bradshaw uh but he isn't exactly a dynamic personality he's uh he's more of an enforcer type and uh he's not really like mike skills are important and just tough talking without being able to uh say something clever or uh or witty which was really like that's what it wasn't just uh you know you know trying to say the craziest stuff or be as edgy as possible it was also having like great innuendos having great insults uh things that you know you have to be fairly quick-witted to do and those didn't play to uh to farouk's strengths and uh, they did to the to the rock in austin and i think that's why they both you know became as huge as they were because they owned those mics like you you didn't nobody even cared about the matches it was the the promo that you wanted to see that uh that pushed the storyline the match itself was secondary and that was really the commentary you wanted to hear and then see what what kind of shady move that uh that they could do and what what promo they're going to cut in the ring as well after the match this is true very vince russo style writing of let's get promos you know match quality is kind of mad um want to get into someone who kind of defines this in my opinion i know that you are going to be uh you're you're you're, you're very biased on this right let's get into the third b- biggest person that people might uh uh, you know, what do you call it? Associate with Attitude Era. And that is Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, a.k.a. Cactus Jack, a.k.a. Dude Love. Um, so Mick Foley actually used to wrestle. I mentioned Cactus Jack earlier was in the old school WCW, then joined the ECW. Um, one, I, me- I think I got in trouble because I was watching a match with him. It was a Texas death match where his ear, where his face got cut up in the, the ring ropes and then his half his ear got cut off and then he continued the match. And my mom thinks she thought it was disgusting and said, turn this WCW crap off. Um, eventually comes in as a deranged figure wearing a brown uniform and a Hannibal Lecter style brown mask and he would rip his hair out and then he would hang out in a boiler room with a mouse that he would talk to Um, and then he had a finishing move called the mandible claw where he would shove it down your mouth Uh, when he debuted in WWF he had a feud with the Undertaker uh, very had a match I think that where the Undertaker like was spitting up foam and stuff like that um, then he had a few casket matches uh, and boiler room matches and matches with uh, Shawn Michaels. Uh, very famously, one called a Mind at Mind Games uh, early on. That I thought was one of my favorite matches. But Mankind um, does all this right. Um, goes through a bunch of different person, multiple personality changes. Year 1998, the banner mark year for WWF. He has a match with The Undertaker uh, called the Hell in a Cell match, which is essentially a cage match, but it's in completely enclosed. The match is not that long, um, but it's very famous. Essentially, 
Within three minutes of uh, the match, they both start or they both start start the match on the cage. They're climbing up. Within three minutes of it, um, mankind is thrown by the Undertaker off of the 16 foot cage. The stretchers come out. Um, great quote from uh, Jim Ross: "Good God Almighty, they killed him!" Right. Um, so take, the stretchers come, take him to the back. He gets off the stretchers, uh, gets off the stretcher, tries to go back, climbs the cage again. He starts fighting. He gets choke slammed. The he gets choke slammed through the cage and goes onto the hard ring floor. And you see one of his teeth fly out. Um, and the chair that was on the cage actually actually fell down and hit him after he got choke slammed. Um, King Fanless go. Oh, that's it. He's dead. And Jim Ross goes. Somebody stop that damn match. Both him and the Undertaker came out saying that they thought he died. Uh, Mick Foley had said that the ring that uh, the cage wasn't supposed to give way, even though you can see that the cage was giving way, and that their combined weight, both being 300 pounds, was starting to sag in. And you can see like some of the bolts that were holding the cage together fall while they're walking on it. He also said that had he landed, he happened to land at the right position. Any other time, he probably would have died. Mick, let's get to Mick Foley because there's a bunch of these moments, uh, and I want to get your thoughts on him. Okay, first off, Mick Foley, uh, he doesn't exactly have the physique one would typically associate with physique. <laughs> yeah with the physique. you know uh, vince is known for for wanting guys to be in in great shape as big as possible uh mick foley not that much uh he put his body on the line every time he went out there uh probably not the smartest thing to do but I couldn't, like, you remember his matches. Like, there's a couple, like Hell in a Cell being uh, the biggest one. Uh, second most being the halftime, Super Bowl halftime show where The Rock had his brain meat. Yeah. Uh, disgusting. Uh, I think you have, uh, so that's Royal Rumble 1999, which I do want to get into, um, where he, the famous thing that Chris Hill is talking about, there was a movie called, what's it called, Beyond the Mat, was it? Beyond the Mat. Okay. Documentary about uh, wrestling, it focuses on uh, Chris Hill's hero, Terry Funk, um, and Mick Foley. Um, essentially, in the match, uh, they have a, what, I quit match. So, in this match, they have, uh, at one point, Mick Foley gets handcuffed, um, and The Rock hits him in the hair with his head with a steel chair about 11 different times. So, a few different things have come out of it. Uh, one of the things is The Rock had said that the, that he was supposed to fall, they had agreed to do three chair shots, but Mick Foley kept standing up, and... He didn't know what to do, so he continued to hit him about eight more times. Um, now, during the documentary, it's being filmed during this, but very famously, uh, Mick Foley's wife and his three-year-old daughter and like his five-year-old son are in the front row, and his daughter is screaming, grimacing at it. And they have footage of him going back to the back, uh, where he's getting, uh, where his brains are rattled, and you see them trying to stitch his head, and he has gashes everywhere, and he's trying to tell his daughter that it was all fake. Okay, <clears throat> a few different things. If you're look, I'm not gonna put. I don't know who's at fault. Whether the Rock didn't, if the Rock didn't, apparently he, the Rocket came and checked on him and apologized, but Mick Foley didn't remember doing it, and people had to tell him that he actually did. And the Rock had written, wrote in his, or Mick Foley had written in his book that he had animosity that the Rock didn't check on him, and then people had said, "Yo, he actually did." You just your brain. If your brain that scrambled that much, stop doing matches like that. He would go on to do a similar match a year later at the Royal Rumble in Madison Square Garden in 2000, um, where he gets handcuffed, um, and he, he allows himself to get pedigreed face first onto a group of thumbtacks. 
which he had also been chokeslammed onto um, in that Hell in a Cell match. I, my thing is this. What the fuck is going on? Hey, sometimes you don't have the most technical ability, uh, and you don't have the most athletic ability, but you've got heart. Okay, maybe mental ability as well. But he's got heart, and he knew that, uh, you know, people like to see old Thick Mick take a, take a beating. And uh, he seemed indestructible. And <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was the thing. You were just like, uh, how badly are they going to kick the shit out of Mick Foley? And uh, then he's going to come back and, uh, like, nothing happened. So, um, we can't tell the story of Raw and SmackDown without talking about January 4th, 1999. Do you know what day this is? Uh, January 4th, 1999. Okay, thank you. All right. This is the turning point of the Monday Night War. So, January 4th, 1999. Uh, so, Raw and their rivalry with Monday Nitro and WCW. Eventually, Raw was always taped. So, Eric Bischoff would uh, essentially... The uh, head of uh, WCW, Eric Bischoff, he would like to uh, read the live, the, the, my, Nitro was live. So he'd read the results of the taped Raw, and he had told the uh, Chris Hill's favorite announcer, Tony Schiavone, to reveal the ending of it. Um, Tony Schiavone had said, in tonight's, uh, t in tonight's uh, main event, uh, Mankind is going to beat The Rock for the WWF title. That'll put a lot of butts in seats. So apparently, Nielsen ratings showed that Raw... Uh, one uh one for the first time in uh, 87 weeks as everybody switched over from watching Monday Nitro to watching Raw. This is actually the same time that uh, Hulk Hogan faced Kevin Nash in a championship match where Hogan poked him with a finger and Kevin Nash fell down and then Hogan won the title to reform the NWO. Um, essentially, a uh, large, uh, large number of viewers had switched over from Nitro to Raw just to see him winning the title. One thing I remember about this, if you've, uh, if you've seen this match, basically, uh, The Rock, I think he had some titty surgery at the time, so he was wearing like, athletic gear, so he looked like he was showing up to do NBA shoot-around, basically. Um, but I guess Stone Cold had been suspended, and he comes in to interfere during the match. The loudest ovation in the world, I I've never heard anything like this, just when you hear the glass shatters, it just pops, right? And then Stone Cold comes out, hits The Rock with a steel chair, uh, The Rock doesn't get his hands up the block. Mankind wins it, and it's like the biggest celebration on the planet. Um, so, look, uh, Mick Foley, Stone Cold, The Rock, integral to the Attitude Era. Uh, thoughts, would you put them as the main people uh, that drove this? I absolutely would. And also, let's not forget that uh, there was the Rock and Sock connection. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Like, you, you know, uh, then there was also... Uh, when uh, when the Rock and and old Mick had the "This is my life," uh, yes, yes, like they just they just put those three to me, put like they were the attitude attitude era. Like so, really with quickly, really quickly, September twenty seventh, nineteen ninety nine. This is your life. This uh, segment alone got an eight point four rating. I I mean shows today can't even like. <laughs> don't even come close to to an 8.4 rating, let alone... Highest rating ever in the history of the company. Now, <laughs> let's put this in perspective. 1990, a lot of our fans are Gen Z and millennials and everything. We love y'all. 1999, you got the West Wing debuting around that time. Franz is just a monster. Um, you got Frazier that Chris Hill liked. Um, you've, got, uh, you, you've got ER, right? And I think George Clooney had left at that time, potentially, or so. 
Um, NBC is just completely killing everything, right? For something on basic cable, this is not like today where it's like, oh, I only watch TNT for, and I watch USA, and I watch so-and-so on A&E and AMC because it's all drama, blah, 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 right? No. Shows like La Femme Nikita and Renegade, shout out to my main man, Larry Mullen, former WWF writer and w and a friend of the Starmada, all podcasts on Starmada and everything, but writing for shows like Renegade, right? Lorenzo Lamas. These kind of shows, Witchblade with D David Chokachi, right? These are the kind of shows that you see on TNT. There's no Suits. There was no Franklin and Bash. There was no, what do you call it, Animal Kingdom, none of that stuff. This is like the Barren Wasteland. 8.4 rating, 1999. Think about that. For one segment where it's the where it's not even they pretend it. Mick Foley thinks it's The Rock's birthday. Let me give you a line from this to show you how cool The Rock was. By the way, all right, September 27, 1999. Apparently, there was a pay per view the night before. Where Is this quote gonna make me hungry? It will. Okay. Okay. Um. So mankind brings out a bunch of people like a clown, um, some girl that apparently was The Rock's former girlfriend and his former coach. Uh, Mankind would introduce all of them, and The Rock would insult them. So at the very end, The Rock goes to him and says, whoa, 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 hold on. Naturally, before you bring anyone out, The Rock has a few things to say. Naturally, The Rock is thankful for all of his fans and everybody out there. You went and you brought out this little clown. You brought out this old what's-her-name. Well, Rock, I told you her name. It doesn't matter what her name is. Then you go out and bring this old floozy that The Rock used to talk to and all. First of all, The Rock's birthday is May 2nd, you stupid son of a bitch. End quote. And Mankind uh, is not insulted because he's he's a fucking goober, right? Just something that... <laughs> I saw this, I go, God. I was like, that's pretty mean, but this is funny as hell. All right? Just, look, that that's like, like that kind of stuff, right? The natural chemistry between those two. You got the chemistry... Uh, we haven't gotten into, like, any Mankind versus Stone Cold because they have a lot of matches, and I think... Stone Cold was always willing to work with them. Um, and then, obviously, the Rock and Mankind uh, chemistry. That kind of stuff, that drives it, right? We haven't talked about DX too much or so, but we don't really have that much time because they're kind of meh. Um, you didn't see that from people like Triple H or the badass Billy Gunn and, and all these kind of things, right? And uh, we only mentioned The Undertaker a few different times, right? But he wasn't known for his chemistry and promos and all. This is what drove the company. This is what defines the attitude there. These three guys. All right. Uh, I interrupted you to share that story, so continue, please. Well, uh, I, w I was hoping you were gonna you were gonna say some of those wonderful quotes that The Rock used, uh, like how he would uh, ask if uh, uh, about poontang pie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was trying to set that one. Yeah. Oh, I should. Yeah, I messed that up. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it again. Try, all right, try it again. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just wondering if uh, if The Rock, uh, you know, during his, that segment, if he said anything that's going to make me hungry. He did, actually. So this is what he said to the ex-girlfriend. <clears throat> the Rock remembers when you would uh, go out there and shake that little thing for the great one. Go ahead and do it right there. After all these years, The Rock has one question for you. Do you like pie? Mm-hmm. Okay. Apple pie. Then Jerry Lawler's like, no, not that one. Is it blueberry pie? No, oh, come on, Rock. No, oh, I know. Is it you You like to give out a little bit of that old poontang pie? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, The Rock says this. Take your little pie-eating ass back to the back, you dumb bluesy. Uh, see, that's just, that, I mean, that, that stands the test of time. All right. I've got a, I've got a, I've got a, <laughs> 
I've got another one. All right, this is not the Rock, but this is going to be from the venerable Stone Cold, who doesn't get enough, uh, who doesn't get enough credit. This is Chris Benoit, uh, who's probably not popular to mention. So we're just going to breeze through that. Comes out and interrupts the Austin after he's having a beer bash. Um, and uh, Chris Benoit lets him know, you know, for someone who's seen as the most popular wrestler, I don't see a whole bunch of wrestling out of you. So I'd uh, like to see if you want to go one-on-one -on -one with the best damn technical wrestler in the WWF. And Austin says, well, hell, son, of, hell, son, I don't know what no damn technical wrestler is, but I went ahead and won the best damn beer drinker in about 10 damn Texas counties, and that's all I got to say about that. Now, you come on you come on out here and you with your little trunks and all and your little bad haircut and you wanna go you wanna talk to old Stone Cold. So let let me ask you this. Give me a hell yeah if you wanna see Stone Cold Steve Austin whoop this old snaggletooth ass the snaggletooth bastard's ass in the middle right here in the middle of this damn ring. Oh hell yeah. Well, well, son, you got yourself a little bit of match. I'll tell you what, you're going to come on out here. You do your little crippler crossface. I'll be the first one to go out there and reverse that old Stone Cold Stunner. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, Stone Cold said so. Oh, that was just... That's just good stuff. All right. We got to get into some awards. Let's start out from the top. Um, we've done a special case for this one, though. Let's go with the Stone Cold appearance. Who do you got? Uh, I'm going with Stone Cold Steve Weisers. I mean, those those uh, those cans, uh, they were in every victory. Great, uh, catching. Great catching by him. The crap stuff on the crowd. Sometimes he'd hold two of them in each hand. He'd still catch another one. Yeah, didn't exactly. Uh, I'm not sure how much he drank, but yeah. uh, they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That uh, The technique wasn't so good, but, I mean, you, you got to give it to the Steve Weisers. They were... Uh, I mean, he'd, he'd make some remarkable catches being on the, on the you know, standing on the, the second turnbuckle. Yeah. People would just be lobbing him. I'll he'd be, like, be one in. Yep. Um, for Stone Cold appearance, it's going to be Stone Cold vehicles, a Zamboni that he brought into the ring, a cement truck that, that ruined, uh, that ruined what do you call it, Vince McMahon's uh, new Corvette, bringing a monster truck uh, to run over uh, Austin's car. Bringing a monster truck to the ring to fight off the Nation of Domination and Degeneration X. Bringing the beer truck to spray The Rock, Shane McMahon, Vince McMahon, Tess, and the Big Boss Man. Um, bringing a crane to destroy the DX Express. Bringing a really weird segment, but one time he used another crane to pick up Triple H who was in a car. And then dropped him about 50 feet from the air, face down on the car, and Triple H returned two weeks later. Um, also, Stone, uh, any car that ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin or him trying to use his uh, special Stone Cold F-150 uh, to run over uh, Rikishi in the weirdest match ever where uh, Rikishi ran, had ran him over a year prior. Rikishi's, uh, they find out that it's in a whodunit that Rikishi's a the guy. They have a match where Rikishi gets no offense in. Um, he's sitting there fat and bloodied, and then uh, for some reason Austin tries to run him over. Cops jump in the way to stop his uh, pickup truck from running him over, and then he just walks off and is back on the show the next night without any criminal charges. So um, any Stone Cold vehicle uh, or vehicles involving Stone Cold, that's a Stone Cold appearance. Always I mean, uh, Stone Cold always brought it. I mean, uh, I, I'm fairly certain that one of the his ability to work heavy machinery directly created one of the worst possible gimmicks ever, and that would be when Steven Regal became the man's man and uh, would wear a construction helmet. Uh, he thought that he would get some of that Austin heat, uh, to which he got zero. Uh, 
but yeah, I remember him coming out with the, uh, with the, uh, with the, the truck and spraying, uh, with the hose, the beer everywhere. Once again, Steve Weiser's for the victory. Uh, yeah, uh, I can't argue with that stone stone colds, uh, vehicles, unheralded hero of uh many a promo all right this one might be hard but let's go with a hey was that moment or no a hey was that um i chose jonathan coachman because he eventually had, he had joined wwf as a corny black guy basically like carlton or larry elder um and he essentially eventually somehow ended up going on to espn and then started making it onto madden games somehow and then now he's with the uh, nbc sports uh, I think he covers like long drive. Uh, what do you, I think he covers golf now with the uh, NBC Sports. Uh, looking back, you might say, "How the fuck did this happen?" Yeah, that is uh, that is just uh, beyond me. That uh, you know they would take somebody from this from the world of wrestling into the world of uh, legitimate sports. Uh, yeah, that one. How the hell did that? How did that happen? Yeah, I got another hit. Was that? Uh, can we go with the, the a few appearances where uh, Jesse the Body Ventura would return during the Attitude Era <laughs> and talk about <laughs> he was a wrestler, but then became governor of Minnesota? Okay, the Body thought that uh, he really created the Attitude Era, but it takes more than a pink boa and uh, some bad sunglasses. Uh, to really uh, think that you started something impressive. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So let's go with best storyline. I'm going to let you kick this one off now. Oh, God. I mean, to, to, to me, uh, the best storyline... I mean, I'm just a fan of The Rock's entire catalog. Uh he wants, he, wants, it, he wants to go with Rock versus Rikishi. I did it for the Rock. <laughs> uh, I, I get, my 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 personal uh, my my favorite storyline: uh, Stone Cold versus Vince McMahon. Yeah, uh, I was gonna go with that. Like, there's just no, there's no. You've never seen uh, somebody go after the owner of the organization that they work for. Kind of preposterous, but then again. Uh, look at your stone cold uh, appearance, and it all ties together. Yeah, so I gotta go. Best storyline. Uh, this one is one. Uh, this is the only moment that this person is gonna get on the show. I am going to go Triple H versus Mick Foley. So in this storyline, uh, I think uh, this is the only time Triple H is gonna be get mentioned. I promise y'all, because I know how uh, boring and droll he is. But from the day one, 1996, right onwards until he's the guy that retires, Mick Foley. Um, he's a guy that made Cactus Jack have a bunch of appearances and all. Um, and he would always beat the hell out of him except early on where, uh, Cactus Jack got a moments where, you know, he pile drives him through a table and a street fight or an, I quit in a false count anywhere match jumps off of a cage, all 300 pounds of him onto uh, triple H in Madison square garden. And then it goes to triple H gets his first championship victory in the greatest and funniest clip of commentary in the history of mankind. Uh, <laughs> Um, they immediately, they beef basically uh, the entire time, and Mankind is responsible for Triple H's career in every capacity. Then Triple H comes back as commissioner, 
Uh, Triple H noticeably never holds the title during that whole time, and then they try to do a soft. Uh, maybe Triple H can be a good guy, and he can interact and crack jokes on Kurt Angle with uh, Mick Foley. Um, Storyline from a, th- a two-and-a-half-year arc of these two are never on the same side, no matter what, when the times that Foley is a bad guy going against Austin, Triple H is a good guy. The rest of the time that Triple H primarily his whole career is a bad guy, Foley's a good guy, right? And their, their interactions, just a lot of chemistry, a lot of classic matches, including their street fight and their Hell in a Cell match. So, that threw people for a loop, I know. Um, let's go to best what-the-fuck moment. Uh, Triple H's high knee. Um... <laughs> Look at that. He's battling back, getting some offense in. Oh, I need to face. Oh, mankind sucks. He can't suck, he can't suck too bad, Rock. He's WF champion. Oh, here comes a, here comes a count. One out of two. Uh, hold on. How about Michael Cole interrupting you? Listen, Michael Cole, don't you dare interrupt The Rock. Well, The Rock, I'm just trying to know, Michael Cole, you just sit there and don't say anything. The Rock will slap that stupid haircut off you and then hand it back to you. Okay, that's what the fuck man. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say for anybody that watched any amount when Mae Young gave birth to a hand, uh, <laughs> there's just no getting around that. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. It was the weirdest. I mean, the Mark Henry Mae Young storyline alone uh, would have qualified, but then to, to birth a hand, uh, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around uh how they came up with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, I have got to, hello, my moment, look, it's 1998. All right. You've got June 28th, 1998. You got the Civic Arena, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, King of the Ring, Mick Foley being thrown from the steel cage versus the Undertaker. Iconic moment. Iconic calls. You've got there. Oh my God. Somebody stopped the damn match. They killed him. Good God Almighty. Oh, that's it. He's dead. And you've got this strat, this changed the direction of Mick Foley's career. Change the perception of Undertaker for the better. It's like, oh, this guy is must-see TV. Um, even though it's mankind doing all the work and being thrown off, right? You're like, all right, this guy, Undertaker, is dangerous. You get a king. You get a King of the Ring match that is better than the first King of the Ring match, and more people remember this one. It's iconic. It is a part of pop culture. I think that it is the biggest thing and re- biggest and most famous moment in wrestling outside of Hulk Hogan um, turning heel at Bash at the Beach uh, in WCW. Uh, WCW. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to dumbest gig- gimmick. They have one of these. Uh, so remember, this is attitude era gimmicks. Not all the stuff that they were doing right before it started. So Papa Shingle and DDS and uh, Irvin R. Scheister and Doink and you know the the bushwhacks <laughs> and everything like that. Those aren't in it. Okay, the dumbest gimmick. Uh, well, I was gonna say there's there's two that I was gonna say. One was uh, uh, what was it? Too cool. With Scotty, Scotty too hottie, uh, and uh, the King's kid, uh, Grandmaster Sexy. <laughs> yeah, uh, because they were so lame. Uh, but I actually enjoyed it uh, because it was so bad. Uh, but the real, the worst gimmick that I saw was uh, was Val Venus, the big Val Boski, a male porn star. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ladies, <laughs> like who? Nobody watches porn for the men. Who? <laughs> Why are you having this, dude? Uh, also, like, if it was really a male porn star, we'd never really see his face. Yeah, uh, 
but I mean, guess just like uh, real porn, like he's he's ne he was never the main uh, focus in any match. Uh, he never got a push. He was just kind of there in the background, making sure that the scene continued, uh, bringing nothing to the table. Just terrible. The cringy promos that he did, the the movies that were shot, where like you see him in the shower. It's like, yeah. who is this for? <laughs> you you didn't like uh, shaving Ryan's privates? <laughs> so dumb. It's like <laughs> it's just every. Like everything that he did was just such a like a thirteen year old who just went and found the names of some porn parodies. Yeah. So I all right. So I have a few, and it's gonna be the people in Degeneration X. <laughs> Look. Uh, so I I vacillated on this. I go okay. Who is you know I was gonna go right to center, but they actually like got a lot of uh, a lot of heat and people were interested in it, right? Then I was gonna go okay, maybe it's like the headbangers, but I was like, eh, I can see that it's the very '90s, right? Then I started to think, all right, Billy Gunn kind of sucks. <laughs> the guy actually won the King of the Ring and they did nothing with him. He lost a Kiss My Ass match, right? And he got destroyed. And Austin didn't want to work with him. He said, I'm not gonna work with some guy who calls himself the Ass Man. <laughs> then I got to thinking, he has a, a sidekick whose brothers are like some inbred pig farmers, uh, or his family members are inbred pig farmers, but he chooses to have cornrows and call himself the D-O-double-G and comes out and tries to rap. And then for a time, he got rid of Billy Gunn, this being the road dog Jesse James. He got with a guy named K. Quick, and they would try to rap to the ring, but they couldn't remember the lyrics to the own, their own music. Uh, and then there was a guy named X-Pac. <laughs> And there's this thing called X-Pac Heat when people don't – not only do they not like you because your character is like a villain, it's that they don't want to see you on the show and they call it X-Pac Heat. And he joined a group eventually that was called uh, the X-Factor where they played Uncle Cracker's song for the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack. Yo, I got everything I ever wanted, but I'll never take that back. Ooh, I know you hate that. And then they dub in the fact X-Factor. Why you got to look at me like that? And it was bad. He teams up with the Pablo Montoya, also known as Just Incredible, and Albert, who had uh, Prince Albert, who had a bunch of piercings and a hairy back. Um, so gross. So he teams up with them. This guy continues to dress like Degeneration X even after the group's over, right? He just changes the color of his thing from red and from black and green, or black, green, and white to red and black, and they keep reforming DX. And then their leader is Triple H, a man who is boring. Before he started wearing his little black leather panties and everything um, and, and taping his fist, he wore random gimmicks. He would have music such as Beethoven's Sixth, Synth, Sixth Sympathy, or Symphony, rather, um, would wear like these robes, and he had a bodyguard that was a male woman, or uh, I don't know, an androgynous woman um, as his bodyguard. The gimmick made... None of these these gimmicks were all trash in every capacity, and somehow... This you loved the Greenwich snob. Yeah, no. He used to wear black jeans with a belt to the ring, and he had a ponytail, and he would, like, uh, bow down, right, after he did a move. Um, and, and curtsy, I guess, right? In his pants, pantaloons. Yeah, his pantaloons. <laughs> then he switches over to wearing some weird stuff where there's a giant H on his dick, and then there's two other smaller H's to the side, and this would be a green, purple, or red with black outlines, and his music sucked. Then he cut his hair off a little bit, started using more steroids, and his voice got a little deeper, not as high-pitched. And he just, his whole thing was, I am the game. I am the game. I am the game. I watched a video one time where there was a watermark 
where it said the game, the game, the game at the watermark. And someone commented, oh, before I turned the sound on, I thought that this video was just, uh, I thought this was uh, subtitles, right? And people go, you know what, to be honest, given all of his promos and everything he said, this is probably accurate. <laughs> DX as a whole, the only thing cool they did was invade WCW office with the tank on that episode of Raw. Um, only cool thing they ever did, their gimmicks were stupid. Like, they're lucky they had pyrotechnics and a fake Motley Crue uh, thing called the DX band. And then they had that stupid-ass DX Express. Gimmick was awful. It, it, it wasn't good. And it was just the most ragtag group of misfits that you're like, I, I don't like you guys by yourself. Uh, when you... a new age outlaw? No. I'm like, oh, garbage times garbage plus garbage and garbage is just more garbage. All like, they... The just terrible. <laughs> the shake, rattle, and roll, the X Factor, the Bronco Buster, and the pedigree. I mean, the Bronco Buster, he just like, you jump and then. He also tore just... his anus doing that, mat, that move during a match as well. <laughs> he tore his anus during, one, during that move one time. Are you sure he didn't tear his anus in one night in China? <laughs> yeah, look, I'll put it this way. <laughs> This, the only thing good about their group was that was China was there, and she was clearly the most liked and most over-wrestler in their group, right? And even her gimmick was like, all right, this is a female bodyguard with, like, a big chin. Looks like, uh, what do you call it? Looks like, uh, what's her name, Olivia Benson? Uh, <laughs> I forgot her name. Terrible. Uh, all right, so favorite match. Go, sorry, go. What were you going to say? Uh, I, I was just going to say, I mean, they were just so lazy, like, Hunter Hearst Helmsley was the Greenwich snob, but instead it's just like, we're going to call you Triple H, and you're going to be the game. The only good thing about the game gimmick was the intro song by Motorhead, where uh, you hear him go, time to play the game! <laughs> you didn't like and, the music before that? One time? Is this on? So bad. You are, you are so not gonna listen to anybody trying to tell me who is to me because I lead the blind because I lead the blind tell me one time isn't it enough you had enough so bad <laughs> yeah uh, alright favorite match type oh. uh, god that one I mean I'm, I'm gonna have to say hell in a cell uh, in a cell, a demonic 16-foot structure. Damn it, where you got to worry more about surviving than you do winning. An ungodly and sadistic piece of Cajun wire. No, no what was sadistic was how little uh, effort was put into uh, making sure the cage was safe and actually uh, bolted together. Uh, <laughs> that, that was the scariest part. You're just like, the this thing is going to go sideways uh, real quick, real fast. But I mean, I always loved it when they cheese grater their face on the on on the chain link. That was just good stuff. <laughs> I always I knew blood was coming when it when there was going to be a hell in a cell match. Oh, yeah. The question was is uh, is the person still going to live after the blood, and how much blood is it going to be? I remember they one time had a six person match. It was Rikishi, The Undertaker, Triple H, Kurt Angle, Austin, and The Rock. And the uh, and they and the whole crowd was just waiting to see a big spot and like Vince McMahon randomly drives a truck down to the ring and it's clear that they're choreographing it for that to be the spot 
And then Undertaker tries to choke slam Rikishi off, and he basically just puts his arm on his neck or his hand on his neck, and then pushes him, and then he falls <laughs> into the thing. All four hundred pounds of him, and it like, and he like lands on all these wood chips and stuff like that. And everybody in the match was bleeding, except the Undertaker, basically. Well, you know, the Undertaker, he, he wasn't exactly known for a bleeder. He was he was known for, uh, at some point in the match, he's going to grab his opponent's hand, who's going to pretend to be dazed for about <laughs> 45 to 50 seconds while he gingerly walks across the top rope and balances with their hand uh, before he does his move. Oh, the That's really... You think he did that to make all the other big men look shitty? Oh, you know he did. Yeah, like, like, he, he's jumping over the top. He's jumping from the inside the ring, jumps to the outside of the ring over the top rope, right? And then you're like, okay, where the fuck's his fat? What? All right. Hey, Big Show, what can your fat ass do? The, the Big Show couldn't. I mean, he could barely lift a leg up, let alone climb anything. Yeah. That dude would, like, he's not going aerial. Yeah, and, uh, what is it? The uh, one the, they call it the one handed choke slam, but he's like grabbing their balls and shit, yo. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one handed, depending on the camera angle. Yeah, uh, my favorite match type: tables, ladders, and chairs. Oh my! Look, this is the towards the end of the Attitude Era. These matches: Edge and Christian, the Hardy Boys, Dudley Boys. You got one group; they're famous for the ladders. They suck. The Hardy Boys. They're trash. Um, then you got the one group famous for the tables. Edge and Christian. They were funny, right? All right. Big teeth behind Edge um, and underbite. Then you've got the Dudley Boys who are famous on the tables. And Jim Ross saying, oh, do you think they got wood? Uh, look, these matches, it's six guys, all young, trying to find their way. Created these matches out of thin air, basically. How do we do a tag team ladder match? How do we make it good? All right, let's throw in chairs. Let's throw in tables. All of them fucking bangers. Um Saw one one time on a SmackDown. Uh, it's Chris Benoit and Jericho versus the Dudley Boys versus the Hardys, right? I ran to school, right? I was like, yo, did you watch this? Oh, yes, I watched it, right? We could have been talking about it any none of, number of things, right? I talked to like 50 different people. Dude, that TLC number four, blah, 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 was amazing, right? Right at the end of the Attitude Era, best fucking match ever. Like, I, God, like, amazing. All right, you weren't a TLC guy, huh? TLC matches were great. My biggest problem with them was uh, the time that it took to uh to take a table out from underneath the ring <laughs> slide it in the yeah uh i'm gonna i'm gonna take this table i'm gonna i'm gonna throw it into the ring meanwhile someone has to pretend they're knocked unconscious then i'm gonna throw them on top of the table oh time to get the ladder because we gotta go we gotta up the stakes <laughs> then they'd have to like they climb up half the ladder they go wait a minute it's five minutes since uh since i uh, i set the table up so then they go they walk all the way down the ladder They'd like slap the person on the table that was supposed to knock them out for another five minutes. <laughs> then they would climb up to the top of the ladder. That was my favorite part. Like I'm all for a suspension of disbelief, but uh, you know, uh, having to pretend you're laid out for ten minutes to get one of these maneuvers set up was uh, was a little much sometimes. But they did when they did pull off the maneuver. Uh, it was a huge payoff. So I saw one one time. Bubba Ray's, yeah, he, he uh, so four tables are set up outside, right? Inexplicably, they're put, there's two, like, in rows, right? Like, four tables on the bottom, or uh, four tables on the bottom, right? Then they go and put up two uh, table on each of those four tables, right? So then, uh, maybe about a minute and a half later, Bubba Ray is setting up a ladder. Takes him forever. Like, he gets the bar, like, gets a little bar, blah, 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 right? He starts climbing. You see him keep looking out the ring, right? And then he 
goes, gets down, rest restructures the ladder, and then you're like, okay, like, what are you doing, man, right? Then, um, finally, Matt Hardy comes in, right, and then they climb, right, very slow and gingerly. Never mind, they haven't had any offense because Bubba Ray's been setting up the ladder, so he shouldn't be gassed, right? Matt Hardy comes in, right, and then they're, they're pun rabbit punching each other. It takes them forever. Then, finally, I think it's Edge or something, or Leader or something like that, comes and pushes them, right, and then they all, then they go flying from the top of the ladder all the way through all eight tables, right? You, you didn't see that coming either, did yeah. you? Oh, my God. Wow, I didn't expect that. Holy shit, right? Jim Ross is like, good God almighty, where did this come from out of nowhere? These men are putting their damn bodies on the line. Those damn sadistic damn Dudleys putting other men through wood. All right? That kind of stuff absolutely ate it up. Let's go to best theme music here. What do you got? Oh, God. Best theme music? Yeah. Oh, you're going to have to come back to me on that one. Okay. I mean, right now... Uh, right now I'm going to say that it's, it's, uh, Austin's because that, that glass breaking, oh, yeah. like that just got, that just got me amped up. Like it's, I, I knew what was, what was going on. Uh, give so, me a second though. I, I might change my I mind. Triple H that what you had mentioned, the game by Motorhead is the best theme music. However, it's not as iconic as the glass shattering. Even when like Austin had disturbed coming in to do this thing, he goes, Psh! Step off into the man with your brain, your brain with the plane, and no, no, that you are, right? Even that, no, just the glass shatter, like whether he's running in to save somebody, running in to ruin a match, has a match, right? The, the Jim, uh, Jerry Lawler, oh, uh oh, the Austin's is gonna come, you might have to batten down the hatches on this place, and then, uh, though, you got Jim Raw, here's a Texas, it's the toughest son of a bitch in the history of the damn company, stone cold, stone cold, stone cold, stone cold, stone cold. Well, he walks here, just walking around, and he's letting him know exactly what he thinks about that. He's reached folk literal status here in the state of Texas, damn it. Nothing better. Just the whole presentation, uh, like in the, the walk to the ring, right, flapping his gums, talking to himself, gets on the four corners post. He's, flip, he's flipping off backwards, so he's flipping off his opponent as opposed to the crowd. All of that goes into it. Best theme music for me. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact that it doesn't even take half a second, and you know what's happening. Uh, I do want to give a special shout out to a, a very unconventional song that I, I actually did enjoy, and that would be uh, Vincent McMahon's theme song. Oh, that. No chance. That's what you got. <laughs> Up against some machine too strong. Raven politicians trying to control us all. Puppets. You'll find your place in line. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I, I always enjoyed that one. <laughs> no, it is a great one, yeah. <laughs> great one. Plus, plus you, they always showed, like, the, the the promo in the front of him just, like, no. the, <laughs> he's got this walk that's, like, just a, a terrible version of what Stone Cold does, <laughs> where he does this, like, really <laughs> bad strut. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, what are you doing? But the song... I'm not going to lie. I like it. No, it is great. Let's go to best on-screen heel. Well, the best on-screen heel uh, would be, uh, would be. I mean, for me, it's The Rock. Uh, when he would come out, because not only was were the promos great, but I knew I was going to get uh, what I was looking for, which would be the, the king in, uh, you know, just cutting... 
the best commentary. It was just it all it all brought everything together. Yeah. So I know a few people are expecting me to go Triple H on here, but we're not going to mention him. So uh, just by default, he loses. Uh, all right, he's not interesting. Uh, look, so I have a few. I would have gone with Vince McMahon as pretty much this entire time, like from the Montreal Screwjob until 2001. He's a villain. He's hated. Yeah, he tells he has a beef with his son. He tells him, I'll never forgive your mom for giving birth to you. While he's having an affair with Trish Stratus, I don't blame him. Um, you know, he's got. Hey, she got Vincent. Kennedy McMahon stratified, yeah. and uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so I, uh, I would go with him. Uh, I would have gone with early days Stone Cold, but it was clear that they were trying to make him a good guy at that part, but while he's still doing dastardly stuff, like he has in a tag, I don't know if you remember, that he's in a tag team with Shawn Michaels. Um, he had just, the, he, he was still, he, was, he didn't change anything that he did, right, from when he was a villain. It's just that Bret Hart happened to become a, a heel, and then the crowd started cheering Austin, right? But he would like he was an unreliable tag team partner. He would complain. He would run into matches, use chairs and underhanded tactics or whatever. Um, but just the fact that the crowd liked him is hard. So I am going to have to actually agree with you on The Rock. Um, another case of didn't really change how he did. Because I remember I watched a match one time and the referee had gotten knocked out. The, the crowd cheers The Rock, right? He goes and gets the ring bell for no reason and uses it and nobody cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> Never changes what he did. Talks down to people. If you were a good guy, he would still give you a rock bottom, just like Austin would do. Um, I think that from if you look at early late '98 to early '99 when they make him a villain, there is nothing. There is nothing more. This guy's 26. He's hit the. He's fucking black and Samoan. First of all, all right. And then he. It's clear that his black jeans were kicking in more than his Samoan jeans. No offense to any of our Samoan people, right? But he did not look like a linebacker or offensive lineman, right? No, he has $500 shirts that he says, uh, these are Versace shirts. I've looked them up. They're Versace shirts. He says the shoes cost $300, right? Talks about himself in the third person, has sunglasses. And let me quote, when he threw the rock, he th the rock threw uh, punch Austin and threw him off of a bridge one time, then threw his belt in the ocean or in the river, right? And so he comes back and does a mock funeral. And this is how the mock funeral went. Dearly trailer park trash. <laughs> I'm going to just leave it there. I don't want to say the rest because it's just, just that part of it, right? Does a mock funeral. Uh, tells him, look, he goes, he, goes, he goes, now that you're down in hell, drinking the, tra the trashiest beer ever. Look, that part, the uh, facing off against mankind and, like, they, uh, they have the I Quit match where they use a recording of the of man uh, interview that mankind said about quitting something. And he says, I quit, and they use that to win the match, stuff like that. Gets into it. The Big Show debuts. Um, cuts a great promo, promo on the Big Show about uh, how he's a 500-pound ignoramus. Um, <laughs> Wait, hold on. He also would go and do the best, the best uh, impersonation of him when he goes. Listen, the, the, the Big Show, The Rock says this. If you think that you have impressed The Rock, let The Rock tell you this. You have never, and The Rock means never, ever have you impressed the great one. From the time that your crappy music hits, well, it's the big slow. And you walk your 500-pound fat ass down to The Rock's ring, and then you proceed to put your nuts all over The Rock's top rope. And you get in there, then you do the single most, never mind that this part is a contradiction of what he's just saying in the exact same quote, but... He, you'd go and do the single most impressive thing The Rock has ever seen, and that is this. <laughs> In case you were struggling with that, let The Rock go ahead and show your little uh, IQ of 40 how he does it from a few different angles. Look at this. Then it's him turning to the left. <laughs> 
Don't worry, The Rock, the Big Show, The Rock knows that you aren't the brightest. So let's take a look at that from another angle. And then it's The Rock from the right side, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the Rock referred to Kane as the big red retard. Oh, yes. While they were both good, they were supposed to be good guys, number one, right? And, and, yeah, having a match, right? Comes out there, and I think the exact quote goes like this. Now, finally, The Rock has come back to Columbus, Ohio. Now, The Rock and his partner, Mankind, who you don't, you're not here to see, you're going to see them defend the tag team titles against two people. One person who's been getting a lot of press here over the last few, week, few weeks, and then there's X-Pac. So let's start. Everyone is all talking. For the last week, all The Rock has heard about how somebody can talk. Kane can talk. That's right. The big red retard can finally talk. So The Rock says this. He has a little bit of something, as he would hear you, you put on that little voice box. My name is Kane. <laughs> I am a Rudy Pooh candy ass. Ah, I heard him say that. I don't, I don't think he would say that. The Rock has a little bit of something that he knows that you could do with that little voice box that you no longer have to use. So go ahead and pull it out. Have a little Xbox take a look at it. Go ahead and dump out all those little batteries. Go ahead. Ah, ah, look at that. They're falling. You go and you pull them out. Then you go ahead and put a little bit of WD-40 on there to make sure that it doesn't squeak and that it works properly. And you turn that son of a bitch sideways and stick it straight up your candy ass. All right. The big calls on the big red retard. Uh, calls says that Austin sits around chewing tobacco, drinking beer, listening to the Backstreet Boys while he like wears uh, a fake version of Austin's hat. Um, all of this, never, look, he didn't do anything that showed that he was a good guy. The, the crowd just cheered for him, all right? He, he was a perfect anti-hero. Like, he never changed. Yeah. The crowd changed for him. He would also knock out the referee if he wasn't getting, like, the three counts he wanted, or he would, like, physically intimidate them, or if he was, like, someone's partner, he wouldn't really come down to help them. Uh, also, I remember a lot of times where someone would be getting their ass whooped, and then The Rock would never come run to the ring to interfere, even if he has beef, but Austin always would. And I go, man, this guy Rock's kind of selfish. And he didn't really treat Mankind that great when they were partners, <laughs> even though Mankind was being annoyed. So The Rock's the best heel. And, and look, I wish we had time to talk about the next era where we get a little bit of that Hollywood Rock where he's doing concerts and stuff like that. But that just speaks to it, all of that was that skill and ability was already there. Um, any parting shots about the Attitude Era as we close out, man? Uh, it needs to come back. Yeah, I, I got it. I'm, I'm a, a, I'm, a gro I'm a grown ass man that would would literally like would watch it, uh, watch that all again. It was it was the best time. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, it was not exactly uh, politically correct. Oh, no, yeah. uh, <laughs> Uh, it would be probably canceled now, but uh, for that moment in time, it was what we needed. Oh, yeah, big time. Well, look, Chris Hill, this was great. Everybody, we the Cinema Assassin joined for Avengers Assemble on the Attitude Era. We will be back next week. Uh, Chris, we'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks for having me on. It's yeah. been too long. If you smell what you're cooking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At least you didn't tell me to shove anything uh, – uh, Turn any some bitch sideways and, and shove it straight up my candy ass. I appreciate that. <laughs> Always. Bingers, we out. Desymbol. This episode was produced by Chris Hill, Chris Wiggins, Suburban Scotty Brown, and Miguel Padilla.